0: 91.3 KBCS Music and Ideas, listener-supported radio from Bellevue College. Today you'll listen to KBCS interviews on a different approach to teaching writing courses, particularly first-year college writing classes. The Washington State Legislature approved the Anti-Racist Curriculum Initiative last year. This includes the implementation of teaching writing classes, with an anti-racist writing assessment ecology model. 62 faculty at 30 out of the 34 Washington Community College and Technical Colleges will be teaching in this method. The anti-racist writing assessment ecology is said to address and minimize what some educators are considering the education system to be a culturally colonized environment. Dr. Asao Inoue is a professor of rhetoric and composition in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. He developed anti-racist writing assessment ecology. Dr. Inoue talked about the approach and what inspired him to create it. This interview with him was from last year
1: as a student in, in public schools, and then in college, and then as a teacher, I just was slowly coming to, to figure this out. I knew that I worked hard, even though I was, didn't always get positive reinforcement from teachers, English teachers or other teachers. I cared about school. I liked learning. I liked reading. I liked academic environments. I thought all of it was really fascinating. So long ago, I decided I didn't care. I couldn't care about what the teacher thought of me. If I did, I would be in trouble because half the time they they, they liked me, half the time they didn't like me so much, or at least so said their grades and their markings. I'm sure they were fine people. But my point is, is that I felt like the labor that I was doing for a class didn't always equate very well to the grade I got. There was a contradiction there. And as a teacher, I wanted those things not to be a contradiction. I want to honor and value in a tangible, real, physical and, and, and a visual way, the labor that students do in my class. Because I know that that's the primary thing that they experience that is, when they take a class and they leave 10 years later, they might say, oh, I got an A in that English class in college. But if they're going to remember anything, it's not the grade. It's the experience of something in the class. That's the laboring that they did. So for me, that's what I want to lean into as a teacher is make the effort and labor that students put into it count and be valued in very prominent ways. So one way is the labor log. Another way is the labor journal. Another way is the, the contract that actually creates the grade from their labor. And then, of course, us talking about it on a regular basis in the class together, that is thinking about ourselves as laborers, not grade grabbers.
0: I want to go there with how it works, how you set out the assignment, and then illustrate for me you know, how it works in the classroom.
1: So because my system is labor-based and we do a lot of negotiating in the first week or so around the contract, the labor-based grading contract, all of the assignments are articulated as labor. Which means they're really process instructions. They're not a product that says, I don't want a five page essay, MLA style, uh, give me th- this way, th- three sources. That kind of information, if it's necessary for the assignment, it's in the labor instructions, but I provide labor instructions. So there's a really brief description at the, at the very top uh, and, made, and the, with the name and crucial things like when it's due and and where you're gonna post it, if it's online or whatever. And then there is the, the very short bulleted list of learning goals. Like this is what this labor is meant to practice in you as the student. So there, and it might be like, pup, but one, two, three, bullet list. And then there's the labor instructions. And they're step one, find a quiet place. Step two, do five minutes of mindful breathing. Mindful breathing is very important in all of my classes. We do lots of meditation every day in class. We do the first five minutes we do that. I give them some literature. I say, this is not meant to change your spirituality or do anything like that. It's meant to help you be present in the learning environment and and notice and pay attention to your body as it learns. If I'm going to ask you to do that, I should give you practice in doing it. Most of my students, they really love it, and especially these days in the days of COVID, and it has been so important to uh, many of my students, you know, emotional and psychological well-being, um, just to be able to have. Let me just pause for five minutes and just breathe. In each step of my labor instructions, I try to highlight or bold. Two important things if they're in that step. One is if there's words read or written that I'm asking, like in a free write or, or a text I want them to read, I'll, I'll identify how many words it usually is as a general expectation. Like In this step, it might take, and I'll say five minutes, and you'll write 100 words on, in a free write that addresses this question, bump. Step four do this, and it might take this long, 10 minutes, and I want you to write this, something like this many words. I tell my students that these are general expectations and because I don't know how long it will take them to read a text, for instance, or write something. It may take longer, it may take shorter. I say it's general guidelines. And so over time in the semester, I will get better at estimating those with the class at hand. I'll never be perfect because everyone's different, but we don't need to be. I tell my students the most important thing in my class is that you pay attention to how much time I'm asking. Like if it's a reading assignment, I give them the labor instructions for reading a chapter and it's chapters 25 pages. And I've estimated that it will take an hour to do that. And some students are taking two hours to do it. I tell them that the most important thing is that you spend at least an hour reading, not that you finish the chapter. And so I try to design, the in-class work so that we aren't counting on everyone to have actually read the whole thing, but usually a good number of folks will. And as, as the semester goes on, I will get better at adjusting both of those things, how much text they can read and how much time. The way I try to gauge this is I these estimates I use as the, the baseline for how much labor I'm going to require students in the class every week. So in the state of Arizona, where I currently teach, for a three-unit course in a 15-week semester, the ABOR, our uh, Arizona Board of of Regents, says you have to assign around 9 to 12 hours of labor outside of the class. So I start with 9. According to our the estimate minutes of labor for each labor assignment, I will make about nine hours every week, give or take, you know, a few minutes here and there. And then I'll get better as we go along and I'll be looking at their labor logs. All my students are required to keep a labor log. It's a really just a Google Sheets thing that's connected to my master Google Sheets that that uh, shows me all the students' labor in minutes and other things that they keep track of. It's sort of like I tell them, it's like your Fitbit for um, your labor in our class. We'll use it as a reflective device. I'm not gonna use it to grade you. I will use it to help understand, am I assigning too much labor? Am I, am I underestimating or overestimating how much time it takes? And then I, that way I can reach out to individual students or the class as a whole and ask them about their labor logs and how much time they're spending the labor log has been a really important part that's married to the, the labor-based grading contract. So um, I don't make them make it up. I make it and I get, send it to them before the class begins and ask them to use them. And then I connect them all to a master you know, spreadsheet that shows me at a glance how each student is doing. At midpoint and final, students use the labor logs in a formal way to reflect upon their labor as a practice over time. So Over each week on every weekend, I always ask students to look back at their labor logs and choose one session of labor they've recorded. They'll record things like time of day, what it was, how many minutes they labored, what kind of labor, was it reading labor primarily, writing labor primarily, a five-star rating of engagement just one to five, like one being really no no engagement, five being super engaged, and then maybe a mood description and something else. And then those things get turned into graphs and uh, um, charts on another page automatically. And that's what we use to look at it over time. But in the over each weekend, they look at one session of labor each week and describe it and talk us through it, ask questions about it, find out about themselves as a learner and laborer in the class. Uh, And then they end that with one statement, uh, each journal entry, they end with one statement about what did I learn from reflecting on my labor this week? What do I think I can take for next week? What will I do next week differently or, or the same that will help me as a learner? This is a really, really valuable, I think, a reflective tool that helps students capitalize on or make, make meaning of the, the labor processes that we do in the class. That is, it turns the laboring into learning in, in a sense. That is, when they can articulate, oh, this is what I learned and here's the labor I did to do it. If I'm going to try to compare a conventional or, or a traditional writing classroom and my own approach that really developed anti-racist writing assessment ecologies, the standard classroom is such that you have a single standard that is determined by either a program or the teacher, and that 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 teacher is the judge of that, and then students submit papers, they might do peer review, they might uh, go to the writing center, do the things like that. But ultimately, the person who is in charge, the one who guards all the gates and has all the power, is the one who gives the grades and who makes the judgments on papers. So no matter what words we want to use to clothe our pedagogy and how kind we are and how thoughtful we are in our responses. If we are grading, as the teacher is grading, the student's experience is I have to do what she says. So the question is always the student in the student's mind, as it should be if they're savvy and smart and a good student, which most I think are, is what do you want? Is this good enough? Is this what you wanted? And of course, that's the worst thing that a writing teacher ever wants to hear because they really want students to own their writing. I mean, I think most writing teachers and and other teachers want that. They don't want them to just sort of mouth what they think that the teacher wants. (laughs) So that's a serious pedagogical problem, but it's a more serious assessment problem. We've treated it too much as a pedagogical or teaching problem. Well, now I just need to craft a better assignment or better uh, handout to give to the the students, or maybe I need to do a better lecture that explains this. My theory says those things are good, but the linchpin in this is how that ecology assessment ecology functions. And so, and how the students experience that ecology. If they experience it as simply submitting and getting a grade, then you are the judge. That is you, the teacher, are the judge. And that is not going to create the kind of environment that I think most teachers want, which is students take ownership of their own learning. They are genuinely engaged and interested in it. They'll work harder than they've ever worked before because they want to do that writing. They want to do that languaging. And I really, really believe people, humans, are naturally uh, language makers. We might have a lot of students and a lot of people who, quote, don't like to write or don't like to read. But I think that is an outcome of schooling and our society that taints that stuff for them. But I firmly believe that everybody loves to do language, whether it's speaking and having conversations with our friends, texting each other, um, doing other kinds of social media interactions, writing emails or writing, journaling or doing more formal kinds of writing. We we language because we need to make contact with each other uh, and we need to communicate. So in my anti-racist classrooms, the first thing that I did was get rid of all those grades. That automatically changes the uh, environment because no longer can the student say, well, what do you want? Because that's not on the table. I'm not grading by quality. Even though we are talking about quality, I'm saying, here's what I don't understand here. This is what typically folks want in this. Here's what the expectations are in this field or in this area. But they're not obligated to, to abide by those things. I can't force them to learn those things. I wouldn't want to. It turns out that when, if the student has that as a goal, they'll do it all on their own. And and they'll learn it better and and, and, in a happier way and want to do it and try to understand better why it's useful for them, meaningful to them, et cetera. So I do this by by using a labor-based grading contract in the class, which basically takes all of the grades off of any of the assignment, turns them into what I call labors for the class. And then the labor is what we use to determine and negotiate as a class, as a whole community, like what will be the B? How much labor does everyone have to do in order to get a B? And then how much more do you have to do to get an A? for instance. And once we make those distinctions, we, then we, you know, we vote on the, on the negotiation. And then we look at it one more time at the midpoint renegotiate after we've experienced the contract for, um, you know, a half a semester or term. And then it's solid at, after midpoint. That's how we administer the grades in the class. And, and I am simply an administrator of the grades. Like I try to be as uh, to be, to administer the grade, the, the contract in the way that we have negotiated it. Uh, and we leave in room in that contract um, a couple of clauses in there for life and unexpected things. You can take one thing off that makes you miss the contract or whatever, like a late assignment or, or an absence in the class if that's important. Good writing is, isn't simply subjective, but it's also communal. I try to keep it as critical as possible. And the only way to have criticality in a, in a language classroom is to have multiple Englishes and multiple languages functioning and operating legitimately in the classroom together. Traditionally, those are the set of expectations teachers have that they say, an A is this, a B is this, a C is this. In my class, we don't have those, obviously, because we're not making those kinds of judgments. Instead, we say, we want to understand what readers think about, say, the use and integration of sources or other voices in this text. How do they do that? That kind of a question is a dimension that we use, uh, that we form together collaboratively because we say this is what our priority is for this assignment and it's important for our learning. And so we need to hear from readers about what their expectations are, where they got those expectations from and how they're applied to the writing I just did and gave to them. I usually have my uh, students... Uh, do this assessment work in letter form. So they're writing letters to each other uh, because I find it a better way to you know, make into narrative their reading experience. Good writers uh, make decisions. They don't follow orders. Uh, in my class, that's the mo- one of the mottos. The, the other one that goes with that is, of course, good readers offer thick um, descriptions of their experiences of texts. So that's the, the letter genre allows us to do that. And it's basically Dear Colleague. On page one, this is what I experienced, and here's what I heard, and here's what I read, and this is where I get that idea from. And the model that I cut, that I have in my head is is so and so, and 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 her book on this and and that kind of stuff. So that that's the kind of assessments that we that uh, students get in my class from all of it from their peers and from me. I do the same thing, and it it makes for a, a much more human languaging experience and more joyful. I mean semester after semester, year after year, my students in end of course evaluations say mostly the same thing about one of the questions that I've always, I've always asked in some form or another is, you know, what part of this class did you like the most or what part would you keep for future uh, versions of this class? And they always say, keep the assessment stuff, keep the group work. We don't need to figure out who's right or who's wrong. We can have those comments in our, to ourselves and say, I think I know what I need to, what's right for me at this moment for this particular thing, but resist the idea of saying you're wrong or you're right. I'm only going to listen to her and he's not smart and she's smarter and that kind of thing. Those things aren't terribly useful when it comes to understanding language. So having a singular standard like mine or somebody else's in the classroom doesn't make a lot of sense if you want to be critical. That is, if you want to be a critical language user, a critical reader, a critical writer, a critical thinker, you just can't do that. You can't operate that way. That's actually the definition of being uncritical. It's just (laughs) adhere to one standard and say, everybody else is wrong, and this is the best way to do it. I'm urging them to do what a a venerable scholar in the field called um, the believing and doubting game, Peter Elbow. So he said, you know, first you believe and then you doubt. Um, and it's got to be in that order. And I think that's absolutely, absolutely true. That is, we really have to try our hardest to believe everything that we see in front of us. If we're going to be critical, we have to start there, not start with the critical, not start with the negative, that I'm going to doubt this first. And we tend to do that in the, in the academy and in school. We tend to say being critical, it means doubting. It means questioning, means doubting something. And it can mean that, but it can also mean finding the good stuff in there or seeing how something can be good. The way I describe it with my students is figure out how a reasonable person like your colleague or like this author can have those views, what would it take in their life language experiences for them to have that view and really, really believe it. They're not trying to deceive anybody. They're trying to be a good person and trying to do this thing right. And that's a good place to start. It's not where you end. <laughs> you also have to play that doubting game, <laughs> but it's a place to start. It's, it's one part of that critical reading practice. And that means you can buy into or accept the set of writing expectations and habits that a person has. And then you have to doubt those as well. Teachers, academics, and others who are in those spaces, who live and commune in those spaces, have a lot of stake in the standards that they hold. And there's good reasons why they have a lot of stake in them. Those standards have been good to them because they're in that space. But most of people on the planet are not and will not be academics. And they will not be in that space. <laughs> They'll be operating in other spaces that will have other kinds of expectations or language habits. They'll need to be flexible. And for just to have a better world, a bigger, more open world, we simply cannot think that our views, and I'm going to broaden this out beyond thinking about language, but our own views of things is always the best way to see things. That we've sort of cornered the market on truth and data and information, because what happens when we do that? Well, we get things like we've seen in the last several years, where people seem to be more intolerant to each other. They don't seem to be willing to compromise or even listen. They don't wanna play the the believing game. They only want to play the doubting game, especially with those who have been identified beforehand as their enemy or as their opponent, ideologically or politically or whatever. And that is not a big world. That is a very small world and it's a very contentious one. Conflict can be really wonderful and good, But it's got to be a certain kind of conflict, I think. It has to be a a contained, healthy conflict. It can't be an adversarial kind of conflict that means it's either me or that other person, or that it's either my ideas or their ideas. I think the world's way bigger than that. and, And we can operate that way. We just don't. We just don't do it very often because it's not good for capitalism. <laughs> and it's not good for the for a two-party system, two-party political system in the United States. It's simply not good for that because the, those things are, are, you know, they're kind of corrupt and they cause a lot of inequity in the world. I mean, that's the foundations of capitalism is how do we make a system <laughs> that's fundamentally unfair, that's fundamentally uneven and we can pool resources in particular places to have that kind of a system and believe it is good You have to also believe that there's a set of foundational truths that you can base those decisions on. If you have those, where do you get those ideas from? You get those ideas from the languaging that you acquired as you grew up and got into positions of power. So when when I look at things like Black Lives Matter, when I see uh, incidents like George Floyd, I think one way to see that is that it started in somebody's writing classroom, that somebody could not be hearing, I can't breathe. How do you not hear that? You don't hear it because you've been trained not to hear it. You've been put in in conditions, language conditions that don't let you hear that. And that's part of what we do in in my classroom is try to hear more language, not just the stuff that makes us feel good, which is usually some teacher's standard. So it seems like it's far afield, but it really, really isn't. It's really, really not. Um, I try very hard. My motto in my class is to assess so people stop dying. That's my goal. And part of it has to do with our own orientations toward language and the ideas that are that they uh, that float with them, that move with them.
0: 91.3 KBCS. That was Dr. Asao Inoue, professor of rhetoric and composition in the College of Integrative Sciences and Arts at Arizona State University. He developed the Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecology and wrote the book, Writing Assessment, Social Justice and the Advancement of Opportunity. That interview was from 2021. A large team of faculty in Washington state have come together with help from the state legislature to implement this Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecology at close to all of Washington's community and technical colleges. Next, you'll listen to an interview with Tish Lopez. Lopez is an anti-racist scholar and a co-lead in anti-racist curriculum and a tenured English faculty member at South Seattle Community College. Lopez has been using the anti-racist writing assessment ecology method since 2019. She shares some of her experiences in learning how to write in academia, and what she's observed while working with the anti-racist writing assessment ecology approach in her classrooms. I spoke with her in May.
2: I'm the daughter of immigrants. My mother immigrated here from Mexico when she was 14, and my dad, he's the child of immigrants. And with both my parents, I grew up with a really positive understanding of the U.S. school system. Both my parents were really pushing the message that earning a college degree was a ticket to a better life and that with a college degree one could potentially own a home, raise a family and have many of the luxuries that you know one might see on on the on television. My family was proud to be part of the education school system. My dad was the first person in the family to have earned a higher degree and it was it was something of great pride and achievement in our family. When I went to school, I went to school with that positive understanding, but I also went to school knowing that I was entering into a system that really wasn't designed for me. I I spent most days in spaces where few people looked like me or understood my culture. Uh, The very first time I was ever taught by a faculty member of color was in college. And time and again, from my early years of education all the way through college, I often faced pressure to give up parts of my Latinx and indigenous identities to conform to a white hegemonic standard. And what I was told time and time again is that if I wanted to be successful, I needed to assimilate. And specifically in English, if I wanted to be a successful communicator, I needed to master standard American English and if i were going to become a teacher i needed to teach to standard american english to help other students master so that they too can become successful so for me you know i struggled a lot in college i felt like college wasn't designed for me i had imposter syndrome i experienced stereotype threat it was a real struggle to learn how to be successful because i didn't really have a lot of role models who had gone through college I often had to learn by example or by looking up examples. So for example, in order for me to learn how to write a strong paper, I had to go to the library and look up professional writing. And then I had to decode it. I had to look at how did professional writers craft an introduction? How did professional writers integrate evidence? How did they conclude their papers? And then I would begin to model it. But that was a really slow learning process. And so in my early years, I was earning C letter grades, B letter grades at best. I often felt really demoralized and depressed. And it really wasn't until my junior and senior year when I had done a lot of that decoding that I began to be successful as a writer. And that led to me eventually becoming a tutor where I taught others and I just felt so much joy in being able to show people what I learned and to be able to give them that knowledge much faster than I did, so that they didn't have to struggle through years of feeling like they were not qualified or they were not strong writers. So that's sort of my entry point into becoming an educator was the struggles that I experienced as a student, becoming a tutor, helping others learn how to improve their writing and finding great joy in that. Um, And so early on, I decided I wanted to be a teacher and that's, that's what I did. When I first became a teacher, I became a teacher really with an interest and opportunity to serve students and particularly BIPOC students. I wanted them to be exposed to diverse faculty. And I wanted them through my presence to feel more seen, to feel understood, to feel confident to continue in higher education. And early on in my career, I felt that one way that I could do that was by elevating and advocating for other BIPOC students. And I could help move the curriculum away from being more Western-centric to being more representative of diverse voices and backgrounds. And so as an early teacher, one of the things I did was I would teach using diverse authors. One of the challenges I kept experiencing is that even though I could change my curriculum and I could try to make that more diverse and more representative of diverse voices, The resistance I kept on experiencing within my department was that I needed to teach students according to disciplinary standards. And I was often told that it was okay to incorporate diverse authors, but that more major and systemic changes, such as rethinking disciplinary norms, changing course outcomes, rethinking commonly held assessment practices, was frowned on. And when I think back to those conversations, what was so interesting in talking with my department colleagues at that time was that it wasn't as if a lot of my colleagues really liked those standards or those norms or assessment standards. I mean, if you talk to the typical English teacher, they'll tell you that grading papers can often be exhausting and even joyless but they truly felt that if they wanted their students to be successful, or if we wanted students to be successful, then we needed to teach them standard American English. And that if we didn't, then we were potentially disadvantaging students and unintentionally causing them harm. And so there was a real great pressure to teach students to assimilate and to master the English language in order to help them succeed. And so early on in my career, I i assign grades for every assignment i attempted to remove bias by utilizing rubrics but grading still felt harmful and it still felt violent and i felt bad when assigning grades and particularly i felt bad because it just felt so arbitrary oftentimes i would have a stack of papers and i would be tired you know maybe i'd read 30 papers at that point or 50 and i quickly began to realize that i was giving one student like plus one for something they did. And the next time I read a paper, I was deducting a point. And there wasn't always necessarily a rhyme or reason. And even if I, I created the best rubrics in the world and, and really tried to hold myself to standards, I'm still a person, I'm still infallible, and I still get tired and exhausted or distracted. And so inevitably, no matter what I did, my grading still felt unfair. And so when I learned about the South scholarship, it 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 felt like a breath of fresh air, um, but it also felt like a shock to the system. One of the things that his scholarship did that was positive is it provided me with an alternative way to view my role as a teacher and and how I teach English composition. It also helped me to unpack and consider all the ways that my writing assessment practices participated in white language supremacy or created conditions of racism. And while that was challenging and hard and difficult, it also felt like I was moving more authentically in a direction that was truly supporting my students. I began to see grading as unfair when I got to learn more about my students. In my classes i would take the time to learn more about who my students were where they came from what their current lived experiences were and not surprisingly because i work at a community college uh, their life experiences in history were quite varied i worked with students who were immigrants or refugees i worked with students that had experienced extreme trauma I also worked with students who were working parents, who had multiple children, and they were trying to care for their children as they were going to school. And I also worked with a lot of international students. And at my institution, we worked with students from as many as 14 different countries in a single class. So it was really incredibly diverse. The grade students earned didn't necessarily honor the labor that they put in. I would have an international student spend six hours reading a text that maybe a, a native student would spend like 20 minutes. And that was really disheartening that I might have to give the international student a lower grade because I'm just basing it on the work that they produced on the page. And so one of the things I really appreciated about Asal's work is he looks at assessing students through their labor. And it's, taking, it's recognizing that grading requires a single dominant standard that is often perceived as racist and white supremacist. And it's asking us to measure them differently and often to measure them by assessing the labor that they put into the work. And it's recognizing and honoring that, which is something that I really found attractive and appreciated. And, and since I've implemented labor-based grading, I've, I've come to really see the value of it i had a student who was a returning student she was in her 40s and she was feeling a little bit insecure about coming back to school and being judged by her classmates but she was also really grade conscious she very much felt like she needed to do exactly what the teacher wanted in order to be successful and what that often meant for her was that she needed to understand what her teachers liked, what they didn't like, and to cater her assignment submissions to that instructor. But with labor-based grading, that doesn't really matter. Students are truly assessed as complete or incomplete as long as they meet the requirements or elements of that activity or assignment. And that while I do provide feedback and evaluation, it doesn't determine their final grade. And so what I started to notice with the student was that Over time, she moved away from trying to write for me to instead writing for herself and her writing just bloomed suddenly she was writing about issues that she cared about and she was sharing opinions that matter to her and she wasn't trying to do anything to please me, but instead she was coming to me just to get feedback on how is my writing coming across to others, where am I communicating effectively, where can I improve but she knew that anything she wrote wasn't gonna be judged by me. And that really allowed her to have the freedom to share her opinion and point of view. And that's something I've seen, not just with that one student, but for many students. And and that's been really one of the joyful surprises of labor-based grading, is that students typically tend to produce stronger writing and they typically tend to be much more honest and authentic about what they feel and think Because they're not trying to please me, they're instead, they're much more intrinsically motivated and it's more about what they want to say and how they want to communicate for their own personal academic and professional goals. Another difference is that in a typical first year composition course, there's often a hidden curriculum where students in the know can complete or do work in certain ways and they know that they're going to be more successful than students that don't know or understand that hidden curriculum. A good example of that is that typically American students understand that the syllabus is negotiable, that a syllabus may have a strict late assignment policy, but that they can contact the instructor and negotiate for some flexibility. But an international student or first-generation student or a student of color might not know that. And so they might think that what is stated in the syllabus is firm and can't be fixed or changed. I myself experienced that. When I was a student at a community college, uh, the syllabus in an econ class I took said that if you missed an exam, you automatically failed the class. And I had been earning an A in that uh, economics class the entire semester. And in the final week of class, I accidentally slept through the final. And I just assumed that I I was gonna fail the class because the syllabus said that you can't miss it. And so i just dropped the class and it wasn't until later that i became a teacher that i realized oh i could have probably talked to that teacher and because i was earning an a before then he probably would have worked with me and i probably would have been successful but i didn't know that so first year composition courses often have that hidden curriculum or that secret way to be successful that only some students learn about and those some students are those who are often the most privileged. And so what I appreciate about labor based grading is that it removes that hidden curriculum, and that it fairly and transparently assesses all students based on their labor, but that the course is also designed in such a way that there is, I would almost argue radical transparency, and how in the underlining systems that govern how we teach and think and work through writing composition. So in a typical first year composition course, there's never any discussion that the genres that we teach in, the way that writing is assessed, the composing processes, the argument structures, the genre conventions in our discipline are shaped by white language supremacy and legacies of oppression and trauma to BIPOC. But in a labor-based course or in a course that uses anti-racist writing assessment ecologies it is discussed so as we are talking about writing we are breaking down the ways in which the genre conventions for example are shaped by white language supremacy and as i'm giving feedback i am sharing how my own positionality is impacting how i am reading their writing and they are sharing with me what their intentions are in their writing, and who they are writing for, and what they are trying to do. And what it does is it shifts it from focusing on there is only one right way to write, and instead it's about the students being able to articulate what are their writing goals, what's the writing situation, who are they writing towards, what goals do they have, and they're able to because we're kind of making the invisible visible, they're learning how to make informed choices in order to create the writing that they want to write and to whom they want to write.
0: What are some surprises for you as you've gone through
2: this? Anything that caught you off guard? How much more the classes became infused with compassion and care. Students really felt seen and cared for, and that meant they also, Saw me and cared for me more. It became more of a supportive community in ways that I, I didn't expect or anticipate. So, some specific examples I can share is just throughout the term, I will, what I find surprising is that I will often get unprompted emails from students just thanking me, thanking me for making the learning experience less stressful or less anxious. I will also have students that just thank me for seeing them and for recognizing that they have lives outside the classroom and and for my attempts to honor and care for them as a whole person. And I also will sometimes get communications from students just telling me that they appreciate the way that the class of structure because it's made writing feel fun again and it's made them feel more comfortable taking risks and experimenting and that's helped them find joy in writing whereas before it it felt very torturous I think what I would just want people to know is that teaching and our disciplines is not neutral and we have to stop pretending that it is That each of our disciplines have a history and that history is often informed by power and privilege and and includes oppression and colonialism and we need to be transparent and and mindful that that those histories exist within our disciplines and that if we are trying to build towards a better future and one that is affirming of all people and voices, then we need to not just teach differently, but approach our discipline differently as well. And that I I think if we truly are student centered, if we're truly trying to find ways to care and honor our students, then it is the responsibility of all educators to embrace an anti-racist oriented assessment approach. Anything else I think is truly harming students. And that's not why we're here. That's not why we, sh- or that's not why we should be here. That notion of, of what is good writing, it's really privileging white supremacy or white supremacist culture and white hegemonic values. And so what I've learned is that teaching isn't neutral and I need to stop pretending that it is. And if I'm really gonna be teaching in ways that honor my students, then I need to be creating opportunities to allow students to write and communicate in the ways that are meaningful and valuable to them which means that i have to get to know my students who are they where do they come from what kind of writing is useful and valuable to them in their personal lives in their academic lives in their professional lives and then i need to change it and transform my course to better suit them and nine times out of ten the answer is not to only teach them formal academic writing and and that's really what labor-based grading has provided me is, is it, it strangely helped me connect to my students more and realized that there are more and frankly, better and more beautiful ways to teach students how to communicate. Um, but from the perspective of,
0: you know, devil's advocate here, what if they say, well, if they don't know that they need to write in a certain way, to reach the standards of these, these formal academic writing processes, then how will they know that that's the way you're supposed to do it in that kind of an
2: academic environment? So yeah, I'm curious what you would say to that. No matter what concern they, they raise, there's always an underlying assumption that they are making. And it's, it's one that's a little bit paternalistic. They often come to think about teaching as the teacher is the one who holds all the knowledge, and the teacher needs to prevent the students from harm. There's also that notion that the teacher knows all and the teacher knows what's right. But labor-based grading is really focused on trusting students, that students know themselves best, that students know what they need, and that students, if given the opportunity, can advocate for what they want and need. And that's hard for some people to accept, but I think it's hard because they are tied to that notion of what they believe a teacher's role is. And what labor-based grading is focusing on is helping people understand that a teacher's role doesn't need to be that. That instead, a teacher can be more of a facilitator or someone who supports students in meeting their goals. I, th- I feel like in the way that,
0: it can get talked about. It can be seen as like, but the world is like this and you have to prepare them for the world. I
2: hate that question because it essentially is giving me, it's basically telling me, okay, well, if you do this thing that is actually going to help prevent harm to your students, um, you are, uh, you're going to be the only one, you're going to be the one who's, who's alone in this. And that actually doesn't prepare students. So is the answer then that I just need to keep upholding white supremacist values, or I need to keep harming my students of color? Like that's, that's not an answer. That's not something that I want to or can agree to. Yeah, I mean, what I would say, too, is that if you look at the statistics of student success in higher ed. The reality is that most students aren't successful, Uh, it's 40 percent or less of students are earning their degree within five years. A huge amount of students are dropping out, and, and one of the main reasons they're dropping out is because higher ed isn't serving them and isn't caring for them in the ways they need to be cared or supporting them. In the ways that they need to be supported so this notion that we just need to continue doing things the way that we've always done is ignoring the fact that the way we currently educate students is causing them harm and it's ignoring the reality that our colleges is currently designed are not really spaces that are affirming and inclusive of our students of color so i choose to resist i choose to teach my students in a way that works to better honor who they are, their identities, and their goals and aspirations. And I choose to see myself as the beginning of a wave. I am, yes, I am a teacher who uses labor-based grading. And maybe there's only a few other teachers on my campus that are using labor-based grading, but it's a start. I think the success of our students, they're graduation and retention rates, the ways in which they describe their labor-based classes is going to help create that tidal wave because they'll go to their other teachers and say, here's the experience that I had in Tisha's class and I would like to see this in your class as well.
0: How do you think this approach? It's been received in Washington State.
2: I think it's being received really well, but that's because we're seeing a tremendous surge in student success rates. Seeing that in classes where labor-based grading is being used, more students are persisting, less students are dropping out, and more students are going on to take more classes. And uh more importantly, when students are taking classes where there's multiple levels, for example, they're going from English 101 to 102, they're being equally successful in the next course even if it isn't taught with labor-based grading, which means that they are learning the skills that they need to learn in the English 101 course that is using labor-based grading. So what we're seeing is that the data is supporting that this is working and that it's working better than almost anything else that's happening right now in in higher education in the classroom. I think once there's more faculty using labor-based grading and we're gonna have even more data, it's going to be the start of a movement. And we're gonna see more faculty embracing this uh, writing assessment method. About how many classes have been using this approach? It's hard to say across all of Washington state. What I can share is that in my department, now um, over half the faculty are using labor-based grading. And I am currently a faculty co-lead of the state board's anti-racist curriculum initiative which is working to bring labor-based grading to all 34 of the community and technical colleges in washington state and so we're currently working with a cohort of uh, three faculty from each of the colleges to teach them how to employ labor-based grading with the hope that those three faculty will go on and uh, teach other faculty in their department and increase the number of faculty who are using labor-based grading in washington state I'll just speak for myself and say that I think the hope and, and the aspiration is that if we're able to be successful in English, that this is something that can potentially work in other disciplines. Um, and one of the reasons that we, we chose English was because English, English and specifically English 101 is the most popular course in community and technical colleges. It's the course that more students take than any other course. And so, and it's also a gatekeeping course that it's a course that the students are not able to successfully complete English 101 within their first year. The chances of them actually persisting and completing their degree uh, decrease significantly, so if we're able to. have more faculty use Labor based grading which results in less students dropping out and more students persisting, then what we hope it will show is that more students will actually work towards completing their degrees and being successful, and that we hope that data will inspire other disciplines to take up labor-based grading or other ungrading practices to better support their students.
0: You're listening to The Grit on KBCS.fm. That was Tish Lopez, tenured faculty at South Seattle Community College in the English Department. Lopez has been implementing anti-racist writing assessment ecology in her classrooms since 2019, and I spoke with her in May. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit KBCS.fm.